0: Welcome to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? with your host, Jeff Stein. This program really does uncover the sometime myth that all are innocent until proven guilty. The truth is that many innocent people are found guilty of a crime that they did not commit. We discuss the judicial system, its flaws, and where it could be made better. Now, here is Jeff Stein. Good
1: morning and welcome to the 22nd live episode of Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? Thank you all for listening. We've had great success with our episodes so much that our listener base continues to grow, and we appreciate your support. I know these are troubled times with the coronavirus going on right now throughout the world, so hopefully you you have some extra time that you can listen to all of our past podcasts if you're uh, trying to find something to do. I am Jeff Stein, your host of Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? I would love to connect with all of you, so please check out our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? You can also reach me at jstein@elpspda.com at elpspda.com or call toll-free to That's 1-800-SEE-THAT. That's one 800 eethat And my website is www.elpspda.com. For our new listeners, let me begin by saying there are many wrongful arrests and convictions in the United States. We're always working to address these problems and with the integrity of those involved in the wrongful convictions. Uh, within the judicial system. We'll talk to victims of wrongful arrests and convictions, witnesses, people involved in the judicial process, and try to create an understanding that our current judicial system is not truth and justice for all. And that everyone needs to be aware of this widespread problem in our country does not discriminate, discriminate against race, religion, sex, or nationality. Anyone can become a victim to the judi- judicial system because of false or coerced statements, ineffective assistance of counsel, lackadaisical police work, prosecutorial misconduct, jailhouse snitches, deceitful witnesses, and even dishonest expert witnesses. I'm excited for today's show. We're going to change things up and keep things fresh. Today, I'm going to talk to Bree Murphy, the Director of Criminal Justice and Reentry for the Transformation Yoga Project. Welcome to the show, Bree, and thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It's Certainly, uh, a critical conversation as we kind of navigate some of the challenges of today, right?
1: Absolutely. It's definitely, um, things have have definitely been taken to the next level with everything that's going on in in the world. And uh, with that, I just, I'm going to read or go over a brief bio about yourself, and then you can fill in any blanks that I missed just so our listeners have an understanding on who you are and what your background is. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Bree, you joined Transformation Yoga Project in 2014 as the Director of Justice and Reentry after graduating from Temple University, where you studied yoga and mindfulness as part of your undergraduate degree in Eastern Philosophy and Visual Anthropology. And that's an interesting topic Mm -hmm. right there. Your deep love for philosophy and commitment to social justice guided you to uh, to a teaching career, a teaching and and, um, a career and service built around the axis of dismantling unjust systems, beliefs and radical self-love since completing your 200 RYT certification. Brianne has completed an additional 400 hours of continuing education focused on trauma sensitive practices essential to working with youth and adults. Bri is an ERYT and YACEP provider, so you're going to have to explain that stuff. A trained facilitator in the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program, methodology, methodology, methodology out of Temple University, and participates in think tanks at State Correctional Institutes at Chester and Phoenix. Bree contributed to both Yoga Service Council Best Practices Symposium and the resultant publication, Yoga, in the criminal justice system. In addition to coordinating all justice partnerships, Bree co-leads Transformation Yoga Projects Justice Training co-facilitates 200-hour yoga teacher training in facilities and develops curriculum for yoga in the justice system. So obviously, yoga has been a catalyst for your own personal growth and transformation and your beliefs that connecting uh, to our own limitless capacity and community to be the greatest tools of healing. So what did I miss, if anything, and can you explain what all those acronyms are?
2: Yeah, sure. So I think to in a Simplistic way, a lot of my personal experiences brought me to um, a meditation practice. So challenges with mental health and things like that, uh, engaging over social justice, um, all kind of brought me to this to this place of wanting to increase access to this really like powerful sense of agency um, that people can develop when they tune into themselves in their own capacity. So I'm a registered yoga teacher, RYT, an experienced registered yoga teacher, E-R-Y-T. Our governing body is called Yoga Alliance. So I'm a continuing education provider with that. Um, And I think that really it's just about how do we, how do we bring in every member of our community to increase access to wellness? Because really, individual health is community health is public health is public safety. Um, and the more that we continue to perpetuate cycles of pushing people to the margin, um, the more that we are, you know, disadvantaging dis, just, um, creating a disadvantage, not only for the people that are kind of experiencing that oppressive movement, but really for society as a whole.
1: Interesting. And, and I totally get where you're coming from. Brie, I always, and this, this isn't necessarily the, the topic of what we're going to talk about today, but I'm going to tie it in. I always share with the listeners that there are approximately 2 million people in jail or prison in the United States. And that's more than any other domesticated country in the world. The, mm-hmm. challenge, the challenge with that, too, is, and there's no perfect formula that can be applied on how many are actually innocent out of those 2 million people, but it is believed to be anywhere from 2% to as much as 10%. So even on the low end, and I'm not a math major, but that equals about 40,000, or on the high end could be as much as 200,000 men and women who have been wrongfully convicted. And that doesn't even include those who have been wrongfully charged with a crime either. So those numbers are really much higher. And um, Mm -hmm. for those reasons, I always recommend that defense must conduct its own investigation instead of relying on the investigation conducted by the prosecutorial team. But with that being said, and, and I know your, your interest in, in the judicial system and the, the criminal justice system, like I mentioned, we incarcerate more people than any other country in the world, and our sentences are more or longer in duration than any other domesticated country in the world. So with that being said I think we as the United States are doing something wrong. And then for the for the most part we don't we don't we don't treat those inmates very well. You know there's there's some programs um GED and there's some that offer some college programs. There's some that offer trades um skills woodworking and welding and you know then you have some of the yoga projects which you're going to talk about but we don't do a good job in the United States. I don't believe and you know, I think we need to do a better job. And it sounds like that's something that, that you in, in Transformation Yoga Project try to get involved with to help provide some of those services for better better health and better mindset and so forth. And that's where your expertise comes into play. So I'll sort of turn that over to you and see if you have any comments on all that stuff that I just shouted out.
2: Absolutely. I mean, we see a small we see a small fraction of people in our very local area, right? Providing these types of services. And I want to address that. You know, when I talk about providing services, I'll talk about like my role and position um, with the organization that you named, Transformation Yoga Project, but also like really just kind of hoping to talk through. Um, some of the larger kind of like <laughs> philosophical questions that we have to get really comfortable with and inside of um, if we're going to create some sort of reprise and some solve, and that's me talking more as an individual. So, you know, with a small fraction that we see, um, we, I know I could name probably on two hands, maybe more, people who have maintained their innocence and have wrongful convictions, and the avenues for them to receive any sort of reprieve based off of the current commutations process is so limited. Um, but I think even larger than that, like you've named, we have 5% of the global population and 25% of the global population is incarcerated people. Uh, We have excessively long sentences. We really aren't comfortable inside of conversations around like when people do their time, when is that enough? And I think that what this service work has brought me is in really close community and proximity with people who have done incredible self-work. Like people who teach me things every single day in terms of how to be compassionate, how to think about our communities first, how to create impact despite barriers. And, you know, we as a society have named that we want, you know, we want to keep people locked up. We want to put bad people away because the good people stay out and that's how we maintain public safety. But in reality, the system that this is built upon is so deeply flawed, so rooted in racism, classism, anti-immigration, um, like you know, anti-Indigenous folks. And if that is the system that the foundation is built upon, then how do we how do we get comfortable inside of that? Like it's really a question of perpetuating violence, right? So we can say that individuals need to be responsible to the larger community but the system itself has been accountable and responsible to no
1: one yep i totally agree and and the exciting thing is even even our canine listeners are passionate about this project too or or this topic so
2: getting fired up
1: absolutely (laughs) i totally get it and and you hit the nail on the head and you know, how do we fix it? I I don't know the answer. I I will say years ago, I did have a different mindset and my mindset was Mm -hmm. everybody's guilty until proven innocent, you know, because that's what, that's what we, that's what we teach. That's what's on TV. That's, that's all around us is when somebody goes to court, somebody gets in trouble, they're guilty, they're wrong. And they don't have a voice. And you know, there's, there's a lot of things that, going to play there and obviously a lot of our inner cities create some of this the stigma and law enforcement the police the prosecutors they're and and I am pro-police and, and pro um, the law enforcement community and I've, I've talked about that in the past and uh, I've had them on my show as well but you know just take some bad apples or some people who aren't educated to realize you know we need to treat everybody with respect and how do we not incarcerate these people for so long, why do we not treat them with respect? How do we get them of that that mindset that they're a good person? you know they may have made have made a mistake and there are bad people you know let's let's get that elephant out of the out of the way you know where somebody who is a serial killer or somebody who continually rapes people and you know there's there's definitely bad people out there that should be incarcerated. But there's, there's other people that really are spending way too much time. And then when they get out, there's nothing for them to do. You know, they, they learn more in prison about how to be criminals than they do about how to be a, a, a regular part of the community. So I don't know how we, we fix that other than education, talking about it, people like you, some of your programs and passions and, and community groups that you belong to trying to find what the solutions are to our mass incarcerations. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean,
2: fortunately, um, as, as a program provider, um, part of our motivation to begin to offer services is the recognition that while we might want to see a future or participate in creating a future where alternatives to mass incarceration exist the reality is, is that people are living their lives in there today, right? And how do we, how do we offer something that has been meaningful in our lives to, um, you know, try to, try to create something different inside of a, a, a very challenging and oppressive system. And so, you know, I think that these systems, putative systems really weren't designed for any of us, um, while not everyone's life is at risk at the same rate, right? We see the racial disparities, we see the disparities across income, the, uh, sexual orientation disparities, the gender identity disparities, like these are, these are very real statistics that who we place the most at risk to be wrongfully convicted, to be incarcerated for an extensively long time. Um, but fortunately, we have like a framework, uh, to go off of, right? A framework. Patrice Coolers talks about Schoolers, freedom fighter, co founder of the Black Lives Matters Global Network, um, recently, you know, in the midst of COVID 19, just started naming all these folks that have given us a framework to, to move from around abolition. And I think that people get really uh, uncomfortable sometimes around the word abolition because of some of the things that you named, right? Like this concept that some people are beyond reprieve or beyond hope um, and deserve to be in a punitive system. But if we thought about abolition as investing in people's right to live in their humanity, in their unlimited capacity, like from birth, then it's actually something that I think most people believe in. Um, we have a lot of things. Uh, so I'm a member of a, several think tanks that meet inside of institutions. We talk a lot about death by incarceration. These think tanks are created by um, educators, community organizers, activists, scholars, poets, people both who are incarcerated and serving death by incarceration sentences, also known as life without parole, um, and people from the outside community. And we talk a lot about reentry and really like, when does reentry start? When should it start? Should it start when people first get into the institution? Should it start when people first get picked up? Should it start at birth? Like, should we be giving people equitable access to all of the things that let people thrive from the get-go? And I think it's a really hard argument to say, no, we shouldn't, or some people shouldn't have it. Um, So, you know, as we're thinking about, like, what other systems have exist and how have things been different, um, we have a tendency to really think about what we've inherited as the only thing, right? We just have to fix the thing that we've inherited because this is how it, it works. But as you stated, so many different global communities have managed um, issues around harms in ways that might promote more healing than us. I think that there are even more exponential ways that, we can address accountability where healing is, like, accessible at all sides, Um, whether it's from the person who was harmed, from the person who caused a harm, like, systemically. So, you know, alternatives and frameworks um, have been given to us if, like you're saying, we invest in exploring that and questioning that and educating ourselves and being willing to be educated um, in a way that could open us up to more possibility.
1: Yeah, I think education and, and educating the public like we're, we're trying to do right now and your think tanks and, and different community outreach programs, <clears throat> excuse me, are really the, the only way that we're going to see any change because people don't like to change. Nobody's. Not not too many people raise their hand and say, okay, I'm gonna I wanna fix this, like and they're gonna take it on by themselves. We need to educate everybody to to make an 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 impact on society. With that being said, this is a perfect spot to take a real quick commercial break. So for our listeners, we'll be right back.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. ELPS Private Detective Agency is here to provide you with security and investigative services. Our specialties include criminal defense, surveillance, security consulting, loss prevention investigations, and more. ELPS Private Detective Agency is a dynamic team of professionals with over 30 years of experience. No case is too small, too large, or too difficult. We're licensed, bonded, and insured. Visit ELPSPDA.com on the web. Or call us at 877-SEE-THAT-ELPS Private Detective Agency. Fighting theft, fraud, and crime, one case at a time. Listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? To reach Jeff Stein or his guest today, please call in to one That's one 472 5788 Or you can send an email to J Stein at ELPSPDA.com. Now, back to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All?
1: Welcome back to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All and our guest today, Bree Murphy. Bree, can, can we just backtrack a little bit and tell, explain to our listeners, where did your passion come from? You grew up in a, in a suburban area outside of, of Philadelphia, uh, within Pennsylvania, obviously, and went to Temple University, majoring in something a little bit different, uh, although it, it definitely ties in. But where did your passion come from with your want and need to get involved with uh, your commitment, I guess, to social justice and your philosophies and and trying to dismantling the the current systems and beliefs and so forth? How did that materialize? Sure.
2: Um, I was at school and was working full-time and going to school full-time and I experienced a pretty significant mental health crisis you know in for my life Um, and as I was studying Buddhism and philosophy I had found so much reassurance just in like the intellectual understanding and the framework that uh, that offered but I knew that there was this experiential piece that I needed to, I needed to dive into literally to be able to feel okay within myself. Um, and so I had reached out to a professor who offered to kind of assist in helping me to develop some of these practices, providing some guidance and some more information about like how to build a meditation practice and how to come back into connection with myself. Um, Because it was really deeply a time when, you know, I just felt like I didn't trust who I was to become in the world or who I was on a day-to-day basis. Um, And that feeling of, like, being lost really called me to, like, have to lean into all the resources that I had available to me. Um, From there, it was also during a time that the Occupy Philly movement, the Occupy movement on the whole, was like big and, and jumping off. And there was a lot of campus organizing that was happening. Um, and so as I started to like gain my bearings and really sit with like, who did I, who did I want to be in the world? Like, who was I actively creating myself to be in the world? Um, that I was fortunate enough to kind of get energized around, Um, community and campus organizing, connecting with peers who were doing like really radical work, who were really well read and just well um, kind of like participating in these community led practices. Um, So I kind of jumped in with both feet and started to learn from them and get a better sense of, of how much power and agency each of us has in creating change or demanding the world that we know we all deserve. Um, And those two things in relationship to each other were like (laughs) life-saving, you know, to be able to see myself and also be seen as a critical actor in creating a world um, that looked a little bit better than what we've been given felt really important and still feels important to this day.
1: And was yoga for you part of your personal transformation to, to help you with your mindset and your Mm -hmm. uh, life issues at the time?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it was specifically a meditation practice for me, but as we know, as we've kind of interpreted these practices in the U S, um, yoga is a term, you know, for many different types of practice over here. And, uh, it's also something that people are a little bit more comfortable with. And so the idea of getting yoga into prisons had existed, right. For a while, there was a lot of organizations that were doing this. And so I thought if, you know, if I wanted to offer meditation, the skills that I need to develop are in yoga, um, And in breath practices and meditation and things like that, so that people can be comfortable inside of what this is termed and invited in to some spaces that might not have had access in a more formal way previously. So I linked up with a couple of people who are from my local area. I took several trainings from nationwide groups, you know, yoga behind bars, is doing a lot of work in Seattle, Washington and the state of Washington prison yoga project works nationally. Um, There's a lot of people who, who have kind of followed a similar though unique trajectory to do this. Um, And I got connected with some local groups that were doing things in the Chester County, Pennsylvania area, which is where I'm from. Um, And the Transformation Yoga Project was one of them, and that's who I'm currently with and have been for several years.
1: And, and you you mentioned, and, and we can talk more about this, is the re-entry, right? When do inmates, when should that re-entry process begin? How do you find, or what's your philosophy with meditation and, and yoga and how that helps Inmates. How does that help rehabilitate them? How does that help them with their mindset and their um, ability to to reenter in back into the, the the population, the general population?
2: Yeah. So we, I mean, we serve people who are incarcerated, right? So we don't typically use terms like inmate or prisoner unless specifically asked to just because, um, that is something that kind of epitomizes people to be this one thing. And we've personally, you know, my drive or desire to offer this practice is that it's not something that you need anything outside of yourself to cultivate and to do like, yes, it's helpful to have someone, um, kind of showing a framework and guidelines, but the practice is really your practice. It's tapping into something that can't be labeled and can't be reified, can't be fixed within you, um, and certainly can't be called fixed by anyone outside of you, right? And so it's a process of tapping into your own unlimited capacity and like the truth of who we are as human beings. And so been a call much less to be a rehabilitative process for people. Um, A lot of my study and the study of people that I work alongside has been in trauma-sensitive practices and trauma-informed practices. And what it calls us to recognize is that the systems and structures aren't trauma-sensitive and aren't trauma-informed, right? Oftentimes, they perpetuate cycles of trauma. So when we are working on an individual or community level, we're looking at offering practices that can remind all of us of, like, our, our innate value and our innate worth as human beings. Um, so I've seen a lot of folks who, again, have done deep, deep work on themselves who offer a really, like, philosophical, like, perspective in life about how we can all be agents of creating positivity and positive impact in the world. And so instead of coming from this framework that there's something that needs to be fixed within the people themselves who are caught up in this system, um, and more so like we all deserve people who can witness us for being valuable just because we're human beings. Um, and if we can do that inside of a system that purports the opposite, then that is something meaningful that we can come in proximity to. And we don't really know what the repercussions or how far that extends outward, you know.
1: And is is that also some things that you do in, in different communities within Pennsylvania?
2: Yeah. So with my work with Transformation Yoga Project, we Um, offer programs at the county level, uh, the state level, and the federal level, as well as in youth detention centers and secure facilities in the greater Philadelphia area. Um, So, a lot of my work now has shifted from spaces that sees a lot more overturn, right? Like at the county level we have a team of incredible instructors who goes in Um, Well, not now, right, as we're all social distancing and figuring out how to navigate this new structure, Um, but who goes in and and sees folks on a weekly basis, Um, but really my work shifted to state level, so working alongside of people who are actually training to become yoga instructors inside of the system itself, Um, and they're gaining access and doing incredible work to serve the people around them to to create a little bit more ease in, in that space
1: so in in any of your roles now you're you personally don't go in too often you're um more directing and and teaching the folks that are
2: so i go in no I go in very often, so I direct you do. and um yeah, I go in sometimes multiple day, times a day um probably three to five times a week, not anymore <laughs> <laughs> with covid nineteen uh which we can talk about uh some of the things that have been shifting inside with that. But, um, so I train people who are incarcerated with a co-facilitator, Colleen DeVergilis, um, who's also local to the Chester County area, uh, to train people who are incarcerated to teach trauma sensitive yoga. So they can have access much more widely than people who are outside of the system. um, You know, to folks who might need it the most, whether it's in secure lockdown units, um, treatment units, things like that.
1: One thing that I'm sure our listeners are are wondering is, what is it like for you or for any of your colleagues to go in? How did you feel the very first time? Were you scared? Were you nervous? I I go into prisons often. Um, I'm meeting with Mm -hmm. my clients. And I just think that our our listeners are thinking, you know, when I go in, I'm I'm meeting with a client and I have my case file and so forth. You're going in to work with the inmates who don't have any intimacy with, you know, with anyone at this point. And, and now there's, um, there's women coming in. Were you nervous? Were you scared? Did that ever even cross your mind? any issues with any of those inmates?
2: No, I mean, I...
1: Actually, and I, I apologize. No. You don't want me to say the word inmates. Any, any problems with <laughs> any of the people who are incarcerated?
2: <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, no, I've, I think that that feeds in a little earlier, you had mentioned like the narrative of like who we think is incarcerated. And so if we have... Ten percent of folks who potentially are wrongfully convicted, um, we kind of, as a as a society, tend to jump to like our worst fear, right? We imagine that these these places that are actually a part of our community, we imagine them as actually as not being a part of our community. We imagine them as being like these kind of horrifying worst case scenario places um with people who we might consider ourselves to need to fear as like as somebody coming in from the outside I had been fortunate to learn from enough people how important it is to really get an understanding of the context that you're entering into and I'm not just talking about like know stats about prisons or institutions. I'm talking about, like, understand what function prisons and jails serve in our society and how they've developed historically to get to the place that they are today. Um, and so having a contextual understanding around mass incarceration, tracing it back through to, like, the 70s when they said that researchers and... Um, Researchers were saying basically that like this, these, these institutions are proven ineffectual for their goals and objectives and probably will change over time, right? So tracing it through like the war on drugs, you know, you can study more through Michelle Alexander, tracing it back to New Jim Crow. Um, all the way back, you can find its roots in in slavery and how these laws have emerged and how these institutions have emerged. And having a contextual understanding of how we got to where we are today, it really takes away some of that fantastical fear that gets kind of, like, offered to us time and time again through the news, through media, through, like, the way that our educational system is structured and, like, punishment even in schools, um, to be able to, to have enough understanding to push back on that and understand that these are just people, these are, part, these are members of our community, and if we don't provide the same access to, like, human rights and to tools that can be supportive and opportunities for learning and healing, then we are a part of the problem.
1: <laughs> yeah and and you're right and that's that's we don't treat our inmates overall the people incarcerated sorry mm-hmm. we we really uh, on a whole as society and the prison population throughout the United States we don't treat them like other domesticated countries do now obviously we're not talking about third world nations where prisons are really just just a terrible thing but for a domesticated country, we are definitely not, not the best out there, and we do have that persona that they're all, you know, the, these terrible people. But they are still people. Some made a mistake. Some are, you know, truly innocent, and some are bad. But you know, across the board, they're they're people, and we need to treat them like people, and and that that doesn't happen, and so it's it's interesting listening to you you've you've definitely done your homework and know what you're talking about and and the the people and the authors that that you've mentioned they've all had you know their their say on on what it's like and what it could be and what it should be and I, again, I don't know how we ever get there and how we're going to be able to change that, but um it's mm-hmm. starting from starting from the very beginning and you know, one of the one of the problems, and I, I think in the inner cities, and where there's so much poverty and drugs and crime, and so when somebody gets hooked on selling drugs, and they get hooked when they're nine, ten, eleven, twelve years old, and they're they're little runners, you know, but their 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 mother or father may not be making much money at all, and they're they're living in you know in in poverty conditions now they start making more money selling drugs than their parents and it really creates a a cycle because now that's sort of their way out of of their living conditions and you know people make that mistake make these decisions that aren't necessarily in their their personal best interest you know they're they want to get out they want to they want to escape that world or create a better world or environment for them, but their methods and means to get there may not be the right thing. So, you know, starting with that mindset at an early age in some of those inner cities may help to cur- curtail that repetitive cycle. W- would you agree or do you have any thoughts on that?
2: I mean, I would just kind of take it to the to the broader question of, like, what conditions are we all co-creating and signing off on that would create a scenario where a child has to make that decision, right? Because that's really, like, I think that you are right. A lot of these survival tactics inside of these cycles of trauma that we place people in as a society get instilled in our children, and so, like, what are we creating together that makes that okay? Um, because it's much less about that child at that point. And that I'm, I don't, it, it, I don't even know that it would matter at what point in their life that they get caught up in the system. But if we are co signing a trajectory that um, creates conditions for, for children to have to make that decision, uh, then I think we really have to look at what what our relationship to even like right and wrong is. Um, if we place more onus on the individual to make decisions when we're only, when we're like, you know, showing a quarter of the deck to some folks and we're saying, pick the highest card. If you've only got one through four in front of you and you pick four, right. And somebody else has all the way up to a King. You can't hold the same, um, you can't hold all the onus on the individuals who are making those choices. You also have to look at why are we showing the deck in this way? And I'm not saying that, you know, we all don't have the capacity to make the best choices for ourselves in our community in every moment, right? We all have that agency. Um, but there's two sides of that coin. And accountability can look very different if we as a society have the hard conversations around, around harm or around violence. Because punitive measures are violent Like, it is violence, right? Um, removing people from their communities and placing them inside of cages. Caging folks for, let's say, property uh, violations, right? So stealing something. Let's say you steal a three hundred dollars scarf, and you can't afford bail, and so then you live inside of a system where people are maybe ignoring your your basic needs. Um, and so I think that these are these are things that we need to ask ourselves on a much broader in a much broader way. Um, again, not to divorce ourselves from the personal agency that we all have and the capacity to to do good and create positive impact at every single turn. But to get really comfortable inside of the complexities of that and how we all also play a role in in upholding maybe some larger, larger narratives that aren't so comfortable.
1: So so what would be your recommendations? How do we how do we fix that or how do you, you know, when you have that person who shoplifted and they stole something, you're right, they can't make bail so they're, they're going to do time now. What happens to them or how do we prevent that? Do we, do we say you got to pay fines, which they can't pay. That's why they're stealing to begin with. You know, what mm-hmm. would be the, the recommendation or, or, or do we put them somewhere where they are not learning how to commit more crimes or, or being in a cage like an animal? You know, do you have any mm-hmm. thoughts?
2: Yeah. I mean, I certainly don't have any like recommendations for rectifying the system as it exists, but I do think that it goes back to that question of like, when do we start investing in everyone? Um, And I think that now is a really important time to have that conversation with everything that's going on with like a global pandemic, right? So we have a health crisis, a public health crisis that is in front of all of us. Um, And the more that we can all educate ourselves around some of our most disenfranchising institutions, um, the more that we can start to offer compassion and grace to those people who are, who are living within those systems, um, to understand, you know, that everything that the media has told us about who gets incarcerated is not true. There's actually a lot of people who, would be helpful to have back in our communities um, and who deserve to be back in, in our communities in their homes in safety. So as this public health crisis arises, we know that we're only as healthy as the people who have the most limited access to healthcare. Um, so in prisons that are overcrowded and understaffed on, a, on their best day, um, how will they manage this type of crisis, this level of a crisis. And fortunately the justice collaborative is a really great resource for that. Um, there's a lot of demands on many levels of the criminal legal system that can help to support just how much discretionary power people have locally, like in our counties, our County commissioners, our County sheriffs to make some of these shifts and changes necessary today to start to keep public safety through a lens of public health. Um, And I do think that when we start to educate ourselves to the truth of, of, you know, this pandemic where a lot of us are feeling put at risk to understand that this is a, this is a sentiment and feeling that we place people in knowingly who are at the margins or placed at the margins of our society on a regular basis, right? So this kind of like panic or fear or risk that we're all feeling, um, it's, Something that's starting to illuminate the truth of the situation that we place people in often. And so when we can come to know and sit inside of that and then also understand how we act to either uphold that or challenge it, then we can start to become more and more empowered and lean into our agency to make the necessary changes, to educate our young people in a truthful and honest way, to give to provide more support into how to be together than like how to produce something for someone. Um, so yeah, I just can't emphasize enough how much, how much kind of collaboration and community action has happened around um, this current crisis and pandemic to think about not forgetting anyone if not for compassion's sake or for humanity's sake, like even for personal self-interest, we are going to be as healthy as the people who, um, you know, don't have access to all of the healthcare or sanitizer or disinfectant that we do.
1: Yeah, this is is a crazy time. And and you, you bring up a really good point in reference to, what can be done, you know, there there is such a, there, there's so much concern and you watch all the local and national news media uh, outlets and their biggest concern is that there's not enough beds in the hospitals and that there's not going to be enough um, medical personnel to take care of everyone. And, you know, nurses are going to get sick, doctors are going to get sick. And now there's more and more beds and less and less of the professional folks that are needed to take care of them. And I think we forget or you don't hear a lot about what happens with inside of the prisons. And I do know that the prisons are, are taking every proactive step they can with the incoming um, uh, folks who are going to be incarcerated, mm-hmm. as well as the correction officers who are working there. They they are getting their temperature checked before they came in, come into each shift. They're making sure that they're, you know, they, they didn't travel, they didn't come in contact with anyone. Uh, if they have a fever, they're being sent home. But again, what happens when too many get sick? It's overpopulated and understaffed as it is. You know, does does it get mm-hmm. even worse? And then what happens? It's it's scary. It's really scary with the pandemic that's going on right now.
2: Yeah, and you know I think all of those measures, all of those measures are necessary. Um, but it also invites us into a conversation that a lot of you know activists and organizers have been in for a long time now, and um, invites us all to kind of like think about, think about what what are what are our collective goals and when people are doing time. And if it is for public health and safety, how do we need to shift what we've done and the practices that we've held to be like critical and important to us as a society? How do we shift them to address and really honor the crisis that we've actually always been in, but now more and more of us are feeling? You know, we can think about clemency and commutations and the power that our governors have to grant that and the board of pardons. We can think about compassionate release for people who are just elderly inside of the system, who have chronic and critical illnesses, terminal illnesses inside of the system. Um, How can we outsource so that the folks who were going to For the folks who are going to be released in a shorter period of time, right, do they really need to do that extra six months now? Do they really need to do a year and a half, or could they be outsourced to parole and come home and be safer and make our community safer? Um, Do we need life without parole in Pennsylvania? Do we really need that at this time? Or are there people who could be these change makers and uphold health and safety in their communities if we were to give them a chance to be released? And do we need to hold folks pre-trial? You know, like, do, do we actually believe that people are innocent until proven guilty or innocent unless they can't afford to pay for that innocence, right, to be posted on bail? And so there are certainly measures that could help to mitigate this overpopulation, decrease from mass incarceration, you know, and hopefully start to move us on a trajectory that does place the system's that can support people from the gate, like, and again, Justice Collaborative is a great resource for anybody who's like looking to actually see what types of demands the community can make or place on these decision makers and how much discretionary power is at every level. Um, Because it's really, it's about all of us and it always has been, but just more of us who are in more privileged positions are feeling it now.
1: Right. And and there's been a lot of talk about letting folks who are incarcerated out early and you see all the backlash it's creating in the media. Oh, they're going to let all these violent Mm -hmm. criminals out. I I don't think anyone's letting any violent criminals out, but that's how that's how the public sees it, because it's 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 on the media. It's on the news every day. And Mm. I, I see it in different groups that I'm in and. Um, on social media and and listservs where they're talking about letting all these these bad guys go. But I I don't think that's the, 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 they're doing exactly what you suggested they do is, you know, do Mm -hmm. they really need to spend the next six months in jail and let them get out a little bit sooner? You have somebody who's ill, let them go get medical treatment on the outside and so forth. So Mm -hmm. it's the stigma, it's the stigma that the media, I think, plays a big role in and the people and just educating them. So.
2: Yeah. And I ahead. think that's the one main thing that, uh, the, the practice of, of yoga and meditation has reminded me of, you know, we really don't, we really don't know how great we all are, right? Like how we can all tap into that unlimited capacity until we do it for ourselves and see it within ourselves.
1: So. So this, last hour went really quick and we have about three minutes left before we close the show out. Mm-hmm. What, what would be your, for the next few minutes, what's your biggest passion? What community outreach group that that you really enjoy working with or what goal would you like to accomplish within the next, within 2020 to see that, you know, X, Y, Z happens or occurs because of something that you believe in. So I guess what I'm asking you is, you know, what's, what's your biggest um, motivating factor and and passion within this system?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I just have a deep gratitude for all of the people who have um, taught me so much, have had, patients with me inside of these community groups. So the people who are incarcerated, um, who have gone through our yoga teacher trainings, who we build alongside of in the think tanks, Um, there's been a lot of gracious learning and education there. And I would just encourage people to get into more um, self-investigation, more learning so that we can, really sit with the complexities and the truths of the history of our country so we can come to learn how much power and agency we have in, in shifting and creating a future that we deserve. Um, you know, I personally am just here for the day that more and more of our people can come home, um, that more and more of our people can return to really live into the positive impact that I know that they will create and they have displayed to be able to create. Um, So hopefully as we all try to navigate this really stressful and uncertain and frankly, scary time, we come closer and closer to, Understanding how community and compassion and just like a fundamental rooting in love or kindness or whatever it is for you, whatever word feels right, um, is really about each of us and it's about all of us. So, you know, seeing things fundamentally shift and change to be able to recognize our humanity as our greatest strength um, and invest in people from day one would be a a beautiful, a beautiful path to start to move on from something that feels scary and uncertain.
1: Are there, um, as a last remark, are there any organizations Mm -hmm. or associations that you would recommend people look to join or maybe to donate to something that would help with everything that we've talked about for this past hour?
2: Yeah, so Decarcerate PA is a great um, organization. CADB, the Coalition to Abolish Death by Incarceration. There's a lot of great Philadelphia-based groups, um, again, for specifically COVID-19 movement things and information. The Justice Collaborative is putting a lot out, um, and I encourage anybody who has the capacity to donate at this time to check out those um, three organizations. And just continue on the path to education and sitting with sitting with our truth.
1: Bree, thanks so much. I wish we had more time to talk because it was really informative, and you're extremely educational. I, I appreciate you taking the time to to spend with us and educate our listeners um, for our listeners. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider giving it a five star review on whatever podcast platform you use to listen as we continue to increase our listener base. We appreciate all of the positive reviews. Stay safe. And until next week, we will talk to you then.
0: Thank you for listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? We can be heard Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please join host Jeff Stein for another edition of the program next week.